0: towards the end of another day. And again, I'd like to just take a moment to check in with you and see where you're at, what's standing out. Anyone? Anyone?
1: Starting to notice when I'm losing that connection Mm. just in the in-between things a sort of scurrying in-between to try
0: and get clean the teeth or I lose it and it's good to be watching that right Oh great so again not making a problem out of that right not making yourself wrong in some way for that happening but that natural extension so that the meditation isn't where it all happens Mm but rather that the formal meditation is a kind of tool which sen- helps sensitize you to then practice, meaning the seamless whole. just the the ongoing connection and curiosity and care to see, oh, where am I? What's happening? And
1: it's a bit helped by the simplicity here. Uh-huh. Normally, I'll just
0: lose it for a whole day at a
1: time until I sit
0: again. Yeah could be. You don't even have to be somewhere else to lose it for a whole day. (laughs) But the interesting thing is actually, because we tend to obsess a little bit, I thought I'd talk a little bit about obsessing tonight actually, just apropos of human life. We tend to obsess about our practice and then there's this practice of being present. So we tend to obsess, oh I've got to be present. And we easily start to measure how much time we're present and then how much time we're not present. And we build some kind of success-failure ratio in based on that. Oh dear. (laughs) Especially as the... Not present ratio sometimes seems rather big, and the present ratio seems rather small. So if we're making our sense of success in practice dependent on that, oh dear. (laughs) And then, of course, when we do feel present for some time, we sort of boost, oh, now I've got it, now I've got it. And then we're setting ourselves up for, again, the disappointment or disillusionment when later, oh, I lost it. I haven't got it. And actually what's interesting, really, much more important than that, is this this seeing that uh, we keep getting caught up right, in one thing or another, in something going on in body, mind, memory, etc. We keep getting caught up, but however much we get caught up, we keep on coming back. Life actually, life's imminence, life's presence, life's immediacy, is much more powerful than one's own mind's tendency to to get obsessive and get caught up. And the most significant thing about the fact that life keeps waking us up is just that, is the fact that here we are. The fact of where we may have been or how long we may have been there or where it was we went or what it was we got into is pretty much irrelevant in that moment. The tragedy is, we use the kind of benediction of life waking us up to then start obsessing about, oh, what was it I was caught up with again? And then there we go, back down the rabbit hole. So, it starts to be a much, much freer process for us, whether we're talking about meditation or the, the larger sphere of practice that includes all of our life. It starts to be a much freer process for us when we're not measuring how much we're present or how much we're not, but when we can actually just really make the most of those moments where life brings us back. Life wakes us up. Life's immediacy reasserts itself through whatever delir, I was going to say, it's a French word, whatever... um, Drama, whatever abstraction I may have been caught up in.
1: Guy, yeah. um, <clears throat> we said earlier about um, not getting caught up in uh, kind of the thought process, but being a bit more viscerally. Is it? I'll I'll repeat. I have a strong sense of uh, past memories coming up. Rather than following, i sort of feeling, sensing into my body, noticing there was an element of pushing. Mm -hmm. I may be thinking I was noting, but actually Right. So there was a sort of um, duality of what I think I felt that the old me, the new me, the New, more spiritual, me, me, all these old memories. But, um, yeah, just a sense of integration, just by noting
2: that. Right. It's kind
0: of like right.
1: a slightly different perspective of the whole life, nothing taken
0: out. Mm. And sounds like, so, guys, speaking about the. Uh, remembering you know old memories impact of the old and the present and uh, what first seemed to be just a noting of that and were actually revealed as a kind of resistance to it or pushing it away and by and finding that pushing through the instruction to just pay attention to the kind of visceral aspect of it right and then sensing a, a kind of integration and, and so in responding to that, it sounds like, you know, the integration that, that's possible in the integration of the past mm. that's possible not by going and trying to meddle with the past, which is often what we usually do fruitlessly, but actually by just really recognising the impact it's having and meeting the impact, right, the pushing, the resistance. Yeah,
1: yeah. and also there's just a natural reconciliation yeah. through noting the
0: two aspects. Right. Mm, yeah, uh, Emma, is it? Um, I found that today I was
2: kind of able a little bit more to sit with various aches and pains and kind of try and care for them a bit. So mm. um, and sometimes they stayed and sometimes they went.
0: Ah. Uh-huh. Is there any is there any other difference that the caring for those aches and pains made other than the their staying or going?
2: Um, I guess I felt a lot more um, kind of in my body. Mm-hmm.
0: It sounds like, if I get what you're saying, the being in your body more gave you the capacity to accommodate the aches and pains, right, without so much fussing and freaking out going on. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, like I said I'd like to speak a little bit about uh, our tendency to obsess in different ways and it's such a large theme where would we start around about our tendency to obsess I, have, I could have just made a list of possible group, you know, areas of obsession but we'd have been here a long time listening to it. I recently heard of somebody who... In fact, I can't remember where I heard this story. I can't remember if I heard it as a story or if it was somebody I know who it happened to. But it involves somebody being very impressed by their Aikido teacher and saying to the teacher, Wow, how come you never lose balance? And it reminded me actually of the, the, the first time I spent any time in a Buddhist monastery, which was in Thailand about 21 years ago. And for the three months I was there, I was quite close friends with an American uh, guy who had spent the previous five years in, uh, in Taiwan studying Tai Chi, and particularly push hands, you know, if you're familiar with Tai Chi. And we would stand the, 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 in the, there was a kind of uh, courtyard in the middle of the men's uh, sleeping area of the monastery. And we would stand sometimes 10, 12 of us in the mornings around and try and push this guy over. And very quickly all 10 or 12 of us would be just sprawled
2: uh,
0: on the floor. And he'd be kind of like this
2: <laughs>
0: in the middle. And uh, last year he came to the Mulan, where I live, and we taught a retreat together. Uh, him teaching the Tai Chi and me the meditation. And uh, by chance it was just 20 years exactly to the week that we'd first, that we'd first met in Thailand. That's just an aside, all of that. <laughs> so somebody's saying to their Aikido, Aikido teacher, wow, how come you never lose your balance? And the way the teacher responded was to say, no, I lose my balance all the time, but my skill lies in knowing how to find it again. And I think that's a very, very good image of Dharma practice and it's a good uh, showing up of one of the kind of most fundamental misunderstandings we make about Dharma practice. The idea that we ought to be in some state of, or that we could achieve some state of, a sort of supreme balance of mind. Where nothing ever goes out of balance. Some state of no trouble. Some enlightened retirement. (laughs) So it might be interesting for us to consider if we have some, not just a view like that, but even some hope of trying to get somewhere, what, safe, somewhere peaceful, some kind of final destination where I don't have to kind of deal with body. Mind, heart, world, and the complexities that that throws up. It's a very, very fundamental kind of human movement, it seems. One doesn't find it just in terms of uh, spiritual practice, just uh, the same things at work, just as much in a kind of secular view, you know, in that sort of mantra of if only. That's the movement at the heart of, oh, if only I, mm -mm, then everything would be okay. And we kind of know well enough philosophically that that's not true, right? But still in the moment, of, we just think, if only my partner wasn't so, then everything would be okay. Or if only I just had, whatever it is, then everything would be okay. In some sense, that there's some state of fulfillment out there. And there's something in the way of me getting to it. And that something might be uh, material, might be, seem, might be situational, might be emotional, might be mental, might be anything. Right? But there's something in the way, and if I could just work out what it was, or get past it, then, oh i would be in you know the the aikido's teacher's state of great balance that would never get lost and that's often the same mind the same mind that thinks if only you know i had this or that thing and you might just reflect a little in your own life what there has been in your life or what there may be now whether it moves around your kind of financial life or your relationship life or your working life Those are some of the big chestnuts of our life. Or some other thing. Some idea that if that thing was sorted out, oh, and, you know, that we bring the same movement often to practice. And it might be any little thing, oh, if if only my knees didn't hurt so much, then I'd really be able to Meditate. As If meditation's waiting for me, the other side of knee pain, but you know meditation's about coming into a real relationship, a skillful relationship, a creative relationship with what is happening, and sorry, but what is happening might be knee pain, or whatever else it is, you know. And there seems to be always something that can show up as being the thing in the way. It's always it's what's that nice expression? If it's not one thing it's your mother. <laughs> So, we're invited to see our, our practice rather than, and as I say, I really invite you to see for yourself if, the extent to which that, that view might be alive for you, rather than an attempt to attain some state called peace or called freedom or called uh, understanding or whatever it is, rather than trying to attain something in the, in the aikido example is called balance rather that the freedom we're interested in isn't isn't a state called balance it's a skill the skill to freely fully wisely skillfully respond to the constant flux of life the constant we could say going out of balance that life does that our life does Because ultimately, fundamentally, life isn't in balance. might sound shocking. Life's too vast and free to be in balance. At the same time, life isn't out of balance either. Life is free from either balance or imbalance. Life is, I mean, sometimes say, oh, life's unfair. Well, life isn't unfair, and life isn't fair. Life is free from being either fair or unfair. It doesn't leave, that freeness of life doesn't leave anywhere for uh, our mental apparatus to get a hang of, to hang on to. it's very interesting that that when we get close to the truth of things there's no there's nowhere for us to hang on to because boy we like to hang on we like to hang on we like the certain the solid the static right to explore as we were last night and yet life invites us and to this skillful movement of responding to the play between what we could call balance and imbalance, the Buddha referred very much very often well, very centrally to this to this uh, path or to this practice, to this way of this skillful navigation, this wise navigation of life as the middle way. Middle way meaning that which absorb, that which avoids the extremes. Avoids the extreme view on one hand, life is fair, and the extreme view on the other hand, life is unfair. In balance or out of balance. And sometimes... I think the middle, the, the subtlety and beauty of what's being referred to as the middle way, gets a little lost as being it's somehow understood as the mediocre way. That if I'm avoiding this and avoiding that, I'm just stuck in the middle, mediocre land, which obviously is not what we're interested in, right? So I just I thought maybe to explore some of the ways we get stuck in what's not an alive, creative response, which the Buddha calls the middle way, but rather the ways we get stuck in some of the extreme views. Another way of saying that's some of the ways we obsess. We can obsess, you know, we can get caught in, well, views about anything. One of, the, one of the current, very uh, prevalent views is our view about the state of the world. Very interesting. What's the state of the world? I mean, from a, from a contemplative viewpoint. Uh, acknowledging the flux of things, the mystery of things, the ever-opening depth of things. Uh, Just the question itself might open up very much. But we have, if we keep it fairly simple, what's the state of the world? We probably read about the state of the world, the so-called state of the world. We discuss the state of the world. We uh, install a wood chip boiler here at Gaia House. To, as a response to the state of the world, among many other things, and our sense of the state of the world is probably shot through with some kind of degree of ecological concern. Right? Although, of course, there are two two opposing views, two extremes. One is the world's going to hell in our handcart, however that expression goes. And the sense of that being an ecological issue and a resources issue and a population issue and a climate issue, and then there's a kind of another view, which which in some ways suggests that those things aren't true or uh, or, or uh, something like that. And so we 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 land in that in that view of the world and it no doubt has its merits it certainly has some importance it seems to us seems to be clear that given the reality of scarcity of resources and given the reality of the changing situation with the so-called state of the world that it seems to be that various kinds of drastic measures are required of us to respond to it and yet it's also not to underestimate the human tendency to hold a view that's in there. So partly to illuminate that, I'd just like to read a quote. It's it's from an Assyrian tablet, 3,000 years old. I don't know much about Assyrian culture but i I looked this up this quote up because it's so astonishing to me, this quote that I looked it up online just to check the veracity of it, and I found it it's quoted in many different sources on the internet, so I can hope assume that it's true from that. interestingly enough, while I was looking for it, I found an, another Assyrian aphorism, which may reveal something about assyrian culture the quote this this isn't the quote I want to read, but the first one. Life is unbearable, but death is not so pleasant either. <laughs> so, either the Assyrians just had a kind of very dark sense of humour, or they were a thoroughly miserable lot. Anyway, this is, this is, this is something that's been uh, translated from an, an extant... A stone tablet from Assyria, two, from 2800 BC. The earth is degenerating today. Bribery and corruption abound. Children no longer obey their parents. Every man wants to write a book, and it is evident that the end of the world is approaching. Wow. <laughs> The Earth is degenerating today. Bribery and corruption abound. Children no longer obey their parents. Every man wants to write a book, and it's evident that the end of the world is approaching. It's hard to discern, and which is why there's so much speculation, of course, about it. It's hard to discern the. St- for anybody at any time in any situation it's hard to discern the state of the world but how interesting that the very things that seem to be of such pressing concern to us today that seem to be very much today's problems seem to have a thread that runs through literally thousands of years of human history there seems to be some some kind of movement in the human mind that suggests thing basically things are getting worse. It seems like that movement increases as we get older, right? not necessarily for everybody and not necessarily in the same way, but there's some sense and this is this is one example among many of the ways in which. There's some kind of perceptual tendency in the human mind that suggests things are getting worse. That suggests that each generation seems to think that children are worse behaved than they were a generation ago. And given that already, 2,800 years ago, children didn't obey their parents anymore, <laughs> you know, what kind, if the, if, that, if the perception was just true, what kind of children would we have by now? I love this line. Every man wants to write a book, <laughs> you know. And we think we live in this kind of reality TV uh, celebrity age, fifteen minutes of fame world. And yet, two and a thousand eight hundred years ago in Assyria, it's, they they thought it seems to be they thought they were in the midst of the same uh, phenomenon. So I don't, I don't in any way wish to uh, speak against the very real challenges that we seem to face globally, uh, ecologically, uh, climatologically, etc. But how easily our, our beliefs, our sense of the state of the world seem to be fixed, certain, solid, static. And yet when we start to inquire we find, like we were speaking about last night, this shaping tendency of the mind. We find the same kind of uh, clinging to certainty with all kinds of beliefs, political beliefs, religious beliefs. Look how much conflict, war, disaster, death, is brought about through the clash of extremes or opposing beliefs, political beliefs, religious beliefs. And we find some kind of great solace. Not Maybe that's too much, not great solace. We say, find some kind of imaginary solace, some sort of uh, uh, a, a sense of security. in in clinging to something. And as we start to sense into uh, what the Buddha called the middle way, the possibility of a freer, more fluid response to life. As many of you have spoken about over these days, we feel both the, the relief of that, or the promise of that, the wide open possibility of that, and yet we also feel The fear of that, the fear of letting go of what we've clung to, what we've identified with, who we've taken ourselves to be. Who we've taken ourselves to be based on our beliefs about ourselves and the world, based on our sense of what our body is, what mind is, what heart is, what world is. It's important, really, just to keep faith with uh, that. Those, these glimpses of fluidity that we get. Even though they're often shot through with, with fear. The fear of letting go. Because we don't know what we're letting go into. We have some kind of authentic knowing that we can trust it. That's why we're here, right? And yet in the moment when we're asked to let go of the old, the seeming certainty, let go of our beliefs about ourselves and other and world, it feels very confronting. So we... we there's uh, these these opposing extremes we could say that we got caught in. And if we look at the world of thought you know, in uh, here on retreat, one extreme, we're just fascinated by our thoughts. We're just in love with our thoughts. We're enthralled to our thoughts. We give so much authority to our thoughts that whatever they tell us, we say, Oh, yes, it's okay. It must be like that. Yeah. Even when those thoughts are unreasonable, even when they're unkind, even when they're like raging, rampaging maniacs in our mind. And even when our thoughts are criticizing us and doubting us and telling us we're lousy at meditation and all that, we say, Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. We, we're, uh, we're completely entranced by thoughts. We give them so much authority that they end up running the show. They end up being all we've got by which to make sense of the world. And for most people, that's as far as we ever get with the development of thought, is that it has the highest authority in our life. And we say, well, what do I know about myself? What do I know about others? What do I know about the world? What my thought tells me about it. And for the vast majority of people, we, we can't, actually can't even imagine a, a, a better authority than that. That's called the extreme of being uh, enslaved by thought. It's not actually thought itself that's the problem or the enemy, right? It's the, it's the fact that it's, we, we don't have any other reference point. It's the fact that we give it uh, a substance and an authority that it really doesn't have. Thought doesn't have the capacity to truly or accurately describe the world. Thought only has the capacity to think in terms of this and that. To think in terms of extremes or opposites. Right? That's why we say, well, come on, surely the world is either fair or it's unfair. Surely things are in balance or they're not in balance. Thought can't make sense of the truth that life is free of either balance or imbalance. Thought can't make sense, like I referred to the Buddha saying this morning, as life as neither coming nor going, neither moving nor standing still. And we might, and it may be what drew us to, to this kind of practice, we might sense the limitation of thought, but... Easily what we do in the sensing the limitation of thought and the frustration with thought and then we sit down and meditate and, oh my God, we feel invaded by thought, crowded by thought, uh, 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 beaten up by thought. And then what easily happens is that we swing to the other extreme of trying to do away with thought. Trying to stop thought, trying to banish thought. Often, when people are new to meditation, that's the, the idea they have, might have, that meditation is somehow you know, kind of uh, just an absence of thought. It sounds more like a lobotomy than a meditation to me. But even if we've very well established and practiced, and even if we think we kind of learned that, oh yes, oh yes, those new meditators—that's what they think. Even if we think we may have learned that lesson long ago, worthy of our attention to see if, in some ways, like like uh, Guy was just saying, what seems like taking note of, being attentive to, has an element of go away. Leave me alone to it. There's always possibility for, this, uh, for uh, refining our skillful response to thought. Like the Aikido teacher who keeps losing his balance, but his skill is in knowing how to respond, knowing how to return. Our practice is, as it gets refined, as it gets more skillful, more fluid, more free, the skill of knowing how to navigate thought without any need to dismiss or banish it, but also without any need for it to be the sole or the highest authority for our sense of what life is. For our sense of what our participation in life is. We can get caught in the same dance of extremes in relation to body. Oh, oh, how we can obsess around body. Again... It uh, seems to be a kind of contemporary view that that's that's something that's particular in our culture. I wonder maybe the Assyrian tablets would have had something to say about uh, obsessive body culture. I don't know. But we see how again, in one view, we can get very caught up in body, body image. The you know, and it's true that our culture puts a lot of store on on youth and. Uh, body shape and all of that. We can get very caught up in all of that. Very obsessive. We can carry on that same obsessive quality in terms of our practice. We can get obsessive easily about various. about body here, about, you know, how body's showing up in shoulders or in neck or in back. Knees. We can get obsessive about what exactly I just need to do to find the perfect posture. How many cushions I need? You know? Sometimes people build up, you know, like the Leaning Tower of Zaphos in the attempt to find the perfect posture. Somebody at the end of a Zen retreat once said to the teacher, "Oh, I really, I really appreciated the retreat, but I had so much leg pain." Will will that get better over time? And the teacher said, probably not. But after a while you won't mind so much. It's not completely true, the probably not. Because there is a, a physical ease that gets more and more well established. But much more significant than whether the bodily conditions actually change is the bit about not minding so much having more capacity to allow what's happening. When the fussing and freaking out aren't happening so much, then a bit of discomfort, a bit of heat, a bit of pressure, a bit of tension isn't such a big deal. Similarly, we can go swing to the other extreme, the kind of denial of the body. The Buddha got caught in that one for a few years, kind of extreme, trying to um, transcend his body, and through all kinds of uh, severe, austere practices. And we don't, we don't go in so much for austere. Practices, although I don't know, it's all relative, right? You might feel like this is more than it's austere <laughs> enough being here. But you know how you often uh, people involved in this practice they develop this strange way of referring. After a while, you know you've got kind of indoctrinated into this kind of practice when you start referring to the body. Right. As if implying there's no ownership here. Right? That we're some kind of spiritual beings, free of body the sensation is arising in the body. And it's, it's uh, you know, I know I catch myself doing that sometimes. I've tried to reclaim my body, right? That it's okay to have a body. But it's very, very prevalent in, in uh, particularly in Dharma scene, Sometimes around in yoga as well and all. But it's particularly prevalent in the Buddhist scene where there's a lot this emphasis on not self, as if there's kind of there's not so much self if the body is somehow independent from a sense of ownership. So we're invited to find a middle way between obsession and rejection. Obsessing around thought, being caught up in thought, giving authority to thought, and then on the other hand, trying to reject thought in gross or sometimes in very subtle ways. Similarly, we're invited to to find a middle way, a creative response to having a body. Neither obsessing about it, neither rejecting it. In fact, we're invited to find a creative response, the middle way, to all our needs. Bodily needs, thought needs, emotional needs, societal needs, financial needs. And if we look in any of those places, we often see the split between obsession and rejection. And the the usual ways of, you know, it's, it's obviously more, um, it's not quite as black and white as this, but the main way we can find it is in the so-called, or what seems to be a kind of secular versus spiritual split. The secular uh, version is the more obsessive version, and unfortunately the se- the spiritual version tends to be the more rejecting or denying version. You see that around sex, right, In the history of sex. Secular relationship to sex, obsessive, but spiritual relationship to sex, just as problematic, De- denial, rejection, avoidance. Sex, oh God, can't, can't include that in, the, in spiritual life. Same thing around money, right? secular view, obsess around money. Look at our, the, our, the kind of cultural trends that we have, they obsess around money. But God, look at the spiritual trends. oh, money somehow impure. We don't like to associate money with spiritual, and even the often the connotations of spiritual are ones of, somehow that rise above, that transcend worldly concerns. but actually that's that's not a spiritual view that's going to be of much help to us. Why not? You'll be able to transcend worldly concerns when you die. (laughs) So meanwhile, maybe there's much more juice rather than trying to transcend money and body and sex and all this stuff of life. If we can find an authentically creative, dynamic response. What would it mean, as the implications, what would it mean to meet my life free of obsession and of rejection? So our practice is one of not freaking out about losing balance, right? Of having a body of having desires, of having the movements of mind, of having uh, life dramas, of having issues we need to contend with, of finding things that we sometimes don't understand or don't know how to meet. Places of uncertainty, of confusion. That's that's part of the free process that life is, of all what constantly moving so freely that it couldn't always be in balance. We couldn't always be in balance. The skill in in meeting that movement out of balance. The invitation to neither obsess, get caught up in, make so much drama out of so-called being out of balance, nor to Um, buy into the illusory idea that so-called balance or resolution or some place where the problems of life go away is waiting the other side of this issue or this uncertainty or this doubt or this problem or this crisis so how do we um, what does that look like? That creative response. Partly it's the, the natural ongoing accumulation of skill that we get more and more comfortable with not knowing, with not being landed in one extreme or another, and get more comfortable with the fluidity of life which at first, like we were just exploring, seems scary. But as we dare, even in very small ways, to let go of the seeming security, to let go of seeming certainty, to let go of the obsession, to let go of rejection, to let go of what I think I know about myself and what I think I know about the world, then that... The fluidity of the Aikido teacher. Right. And we get more skilled at recognizing what that is. More skilled at. Um, more skilled in ambiguity. To be skilled in ambiguity is to be free from extremes. Free from obsessing or rejecting, free from views, free from clinging, free from the need to be right, free from the need to know. And this is a practice of becoming skilled in ambiguity. And partly, it's about love. Love that opens up in so many different ways. Letting ourselves be deeply touched by what we notice, what we notice within, what we notice without. Just when the rain got louder then, we could feel the way... Oh there's a sensitivity to that i could feel the way people be uh, were being touched by it life invites us to be touched to be drawn in to be included to be close to what's happening close to the rain close to one another close to ourselves We're often afraid of the kind of tenderness, the poignancy of being deeply touched. There's a, a kind of quivering that happens in the heart. And it feels like if I let this in too much, it'll somehow dissolve me. It'll, it'll, it we feel like somehow something will melt. It might feel sometimes like our heart would break. And all that's true. Something in us will melt. Something in us will break. And you know, when the heart breaks, actually it breaks open. If we let it break consciously. Rain can break your heart open. Breathing in and out can break your heart open. Walking on the earth. Eating lunch. Opening one's sensitivity to the, the myriad blessings of our life. When we're not obsessing over or rejecting The dramas and details, the thoughts and beliefs, then there's much more room for life to deeply touch us. Much more room for our life to open up. That's the invitation of this practice and this teaching. may we heed the call, may we be free from obsession and rejection, may we know a true, creative, authentic response to life, moment by moment. And may we never land in certainty.